This is Lesson 2B, Other Lovers, and I really do thank you for coming. I hope you got one of these on the back stand as you came in. Thank you for being uh, patient and flexible with all these different people that stand up here and have their own ways of doing things. This is a front and back handout, and I just want to point out a few things. There are uh, a couple of blanks. Don't fill them in if you don't want to. Nobody's checking your work. But some people really like to fill them in. And by the way, it's been proven. If you write it with your own hand or make a song out of it, you'll remember it better. So whatever. Um, And then on the back, my application questions are, I just have called them so what, now what for years. So that's what I'm talking about on a so what, now what. Questions that we need to ask ourselves. And on the back also, you'll see a for further reading section. And when I reference a book in the lecture, I'll try to give you the information on the back so you're not trying to write that down. Almost every scripture that we go over is on here. There's one that I'm going to ask you to write in yourself, but that hopefully will help you keep up also. You won't need to be flipping in your Bibles because we're not sitting at tables, and that's really frustrating to have to maneuver on your lap, your notes, and everything else. So I'll have the scriptures up here for you, but know that I value highly the Word of God. Okay? All right. All right. Got that. If you didn't get one, seriously, you're going to want one, even if you don't write a single thing down, just so you can see when I'm coming near the end. Okay? All right. All right. I am a retired professor at Wheaton College. I don't teach anymore. I, I could either do that or this, and I chose this. Um, So, I'm used to a back and forth, and I know this isn't a conducive setting for that, but play along, it'll go a lot faster, alright? So the first question I have for you is, what instructions do you typically hear from parents to little ones at the dinner table? Y'all have to say them loudly, and I'll repeat them so everybody can hear. What do you hear parents say to their kids at the dinner table? Eat your vegetables. What, what? Use your fork. That's the positive to don't use your hands. (laughs) What else? Give me one more. Chew with your mouth closed and sit on the chair. Yes, okay. We're going to come back to all these. This, by the way, is our middle child in our egg battle. And I just want to let you know that she loves eggs today, scrambled eggs, even egg salad. So there is hope for you young moms out there. Now this next one, I want you to close your eyes. Everybody, in the, except Michelle, because she's walking. Don't close your eyes, Michelle. I don't want you to fall. Everybody else, close your eyes. This is a word association. Do you know when you hear words, you actually do picture things? Even the most uncreative person? So when I say this word, a picture actually will come in your mind. Idle. Now what just came in your mind? Open your eyes. Maybe it was something like this. Now, I don't have one of these golden caps. I do have a bronze Texas Longhorn in my home. Um, but I don't bow down to it or anything. It just, it was my father's. He worked for University of Texas for over 30 years. And I, I when he passed away, I, I got it. And it sits in my bookshelf and reminds me of him. But I'm not, like, worshiping the, the Texas Longhorn. And I don't have a golden one. I'm not bowing down. And yet I do struggle with idols. Idolatry. I'll be the first one to tell you. I think we should pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for your grace, for your forgiveness, for your patience with us as we struggle with some of these same things over and over again. 
Thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of your spirit. And we're counting on your spirit to teach us today. We open our minds to you, our hearts to you, and our ears to everything you want us to hear. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Now I reread Hosea from front to back in preparation for this lecture today and, and highlighted in orange every time there was any mention of idol or idolatry. And do you know in every chapter of Hosea, every single one, there's 14 chapters, something is said about idols or idolatry. This is probably why Jennifer mentions it several times in her lectures and why in days four and five of our lesson for today you came across it. Pat mentioned it in her lecture. And guess what? Jennifer's coming back to it in a couple of weeks and doing an entire lecture on it and going to come up with another one of her new words, idolatry trinkets. And she's going to give us a lot of lists. So we're not going to cover any of this today because it's coming. But as Pat and I met back in December to map out our teaching time, we felt it was important to bring idols home. Not like for real, but for real. Like nobody's taking home idols today, but chances are they're already there and they're in our hearts. And yet if I don't really understand what idolatry is, then as I read through Hosea and as I do Jennifer's study, there might be a tendency for me to think, oh, well, that's not one of my problems. I got lots of others, but that's not one of mine. So all through Hosea, Old Testament and New Testament, these kind of images are what come to mind, are what are conjured up. In the last chapter of Hosea, we see God's healing for the repentant and God's command again. Listen to Hosea 14, 8. Oh, Israel. And remember, we can put our names in there, right? So we can say, oh, Rhonda, stay away from idols. Here it is, the last chapter. Talked about it in every chapter. And again in the last chapter, oh, Rhonda, stay away from idols. This is God speaking, and he says, I am the one who answers your prayers and cares for you. I'm like a tree that's always green. All your fruit comes from me. You see the danger, the warning, and then you also see his love for us, his desire to protect and provide for me. So even when we try to bring it forward into the 21st century, we still might be struggling, and we picture something like this and think, oh, that's another culture's problem, or that's another country's problem. So in it, honestly, what is the big deal? We're sitting here in Bible study in church for crying out loud, worshiping God. We're good, right? Let me ask you another question. What's the first commandment of the Ten Commandments? What's the first commandment? I'll wait. I can wait you out. Did you see the girl sleeping in her eggs? I can wait you out. What's the first commandment? What? Yes. And we're not to have any other God's before him. That's the very first commandment in Exodus 20. You must not have any other God but me. All right, let's go back to the first question I asked you today, which were, what do you hear parents say at the dinner table? Every one of those commands that you told to me, not a one of them would have come naturally to your child. If it was a do, the don't would have come naturally. If it was a don't, the do would have, right? Or you wouldn't say it. You wouldn't have, did, did any, has anybody ever heard a mama or a daddy say, make sure you eat all your dessert? <laughs> no, why? Why? Because that's not necessary. So by the very nature that God tells us, in the very first commandment, you must not have any other God but me, we must have an inclination there. 
in our heart to have another God but him. There's a great book by Josh McDowell. This one I didn't put on there, right from wrong. It changed my life. I read it years and years ago. It's an older book. But it changed the way I read God's word, especially his precepts and his principles. And in a nutshell, Josh encourages us to ask why, 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 over and over again, not in a disrespectful way, but in an effort to press on to know God more. So that's what I want us to do with this. Don't. You must not have any other God but me. Why? Why would he say this? And we see in Deuteronomy 10 and Jeremiah, it's for our own good. But why is it for my own good? Look at Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters, for you'll hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. The context here in the Matthew passage is about money. The principle goes beyond that. The principle is, I can't serve two masters. So the God who made me, who knows me best and loves me most, knows this is true about me. I am made to love and to be devoted. So the question is... To whom will I be devoted? Who will I give my love? There's only one right choice, one that is worthy, and that's where we get the word worship. Expression of reverence and adoration of God is the biblical definition. Reverence and adoration. N.T. Ryden, for all God's worth, says the word worship means literally worth-ship. To accord worth, true value to something. To recognize and respect it for the true worth it has. To recognize and respect it for the true worth it has. Now Psalm 95 is just a beautiful psalm to get started with. Look towards the end of the, pas the passage. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. We are the people He watches over, the flock under His care. You see again... God's protection and provision for us. Now maybe we're thinking, but we're smarter than that. This is 2017. We are smarter than that. All right, tell me, who was this known in the Bible as being the wisest man? Not Jesus. He was wisdom personified. So I'm talking not, the answer is not Jesus or God. So who was known for being the wisest man? Solomon. He was known for his wealth and his wisdom. Newsflash. Solomon had a huge idol problem. You can read all about it in 1 Kings. His problem was so big that God came to him personally and gave him the warning, Solomon, don't worship idols. And yet he did. And the results were devastating to the entire kingdom. Did you know Solomon's temple was destroyed because of idolatry? The people were dispersed because of idolatry. I'm thinking that if the wisest human struggled with idolatry, idolatry must be one of three things. Either easy to start and or difficult to see and or difficult to stop. And as I looked at those three, I realized from my own life and from scripture, all three are true. We know that it must be easy to start because we saw in God's very first commandment to us not to do it, right? But why is idolatry so difficult to see? Well, in the Old Testament and New Testament and Hosea 2, we see gold statues, Asherah poles, burning incense, sacrifices, which often stops us from seeing the idolatry in our own lives. We have a definition in 1 John, which I think is so helpful to get the bigger and broader picture. 1 John 5 says, Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. 
That's the very basic definition of an idol. As a matter of fact, in the NIV, it says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. In Out of the Salt Shaker, Rebecca Pippert says, Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. An idol, by its very definition, controls us. Do you see why God doesn't want us to have any idols? In our Hosea study, Jennifer defines an idol and says anything we set up instead of or along with God is an idol. Idolize, which is a, a book by Dee Breston. It's in our church library, but not yet because I'm still reading it and learning a lot from it. So give me a week and it'll be back in there. But she says, anytime our deepest desire is for something other than God, because we think that will satisfy or rescue us, a dangerous soul idol is forming. We may idolize the approval of people, our own comfort, or maintaining control. The second chapter, by the way, in this book is the idolatry of friendship, which I think is what your group just studied, not the idolatry of it, but friendship um, in the fall. So really good book. I'm learning a lot, so I'm not through yet, but one week you can have it. The Bible makes it clear that we cannot confine idolatry to the literal bowing down, in case you're still thinking, I have not gotten on my knees since I fell. Okay, So let's look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel says idols in their hearts, set up idols in their hearts and fallen into sin. And then look at what God's response is. Repent and turn away from your idols and stop all your detestable sins. In this way, the people of Israel will learn not to stray from me, polluting themselves with sin. They will be my people and I will be their God. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. Do you notice the the desired, the precious love relationship God wants with us? Timothy Keller and Counterfeit Gods. This is... um, the best book I have ever read on idols and idolatry, and it came out years ago. I read it along when it came out um, and re-looked re- at it for our lecture today. It was very helpful again. He says, an idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. This is in the further reading on the back, so you don't need to try and write that down. On your tables, when you get to your groups, I on purpose didn't want them on the stand because I don't want you trying to do that too. But when you get back to your tables... I, I did the David Letterman top ten, so I just kind of summarized this book because I know not everybody's at a stage in life right now where you can read, and some of you don't even like to read. So you can just look at those top ten points, and that's kind of my own summary of the whole book. Then when you turn that handout over on the back side is ten lists of idle categories that Timothy Keller gives in that book, and it's meant just for you to have in your personal time with Jesus when no one else is around, which I realize might be at 3 or 4 in the morning for you, but to just read through and to think, Lord, is this me? The next one. Lord, is this me? Over and over again. So it's just meant to be an additional resource. That last fact, when you look at them in the top ten, says idolatry is not only one sin among many, but what is fundamentally wrong with the human heart. And we see this in Romans 1. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks, and they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself. 
Who is worthy of eternal praise? And then we're back to worship, right? Worthiness. The first fact on that list is the human heart is an idol factory. It's not just an idol factory. It mass produces idols. In Jeremiah 17, we see the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. That's talking about, are you a human? Yeah, good. One on the back row is a human. Me too. Yeah. So we have got deceitful, wicked hearts, you and me. The rest of them, I don't know. But you and me, we're in trouble. Look what it says. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. You know what? There is no one I would rather examine me than God. Because he loves me. And surprise, nothing that he finds out will shock him. He already knows me. So I have a serious heart problem. We have a heart condition, and I actually may not even be aware of all the problems that are there without the Lord helping me. He who made me. So what might idols look like today? So this is American Idol season 2017. And I'm going to warn you right now that some images may be personally offensive. Okay? So this one came from our group last week. I added this in after our last week's talk. Someone said technology could be an idol. You say, oh, no. Let's put some faces on that. Then there's sports and or entertainment. Let's bring that on home. Did you see I put the Cowboys playing the Bears there? That was good of me. Um, and then let's bring that one home. Maybe it looks more like this. Now, what about this one? Oh, no, not us. Let's put a face on that. Oh, look, it's women just like me and you. Well, more like you because they're younger than me. But still. <laughs> Now, this one came from our group last week, and it was most baffling, the hardest to get to, for them to understand. I promised them I would talk about it today. Our family. Ah, no. Uh, let's put some faces on it. What? Family? Wait, really? Yeah. Number nine on that top ten idol sheet, a quote from Tim Keller's book. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Any king, anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. We'll talk more about this in a minute. What about this one? The things you own, owning you. Maybe it looks more like this. Or what about this? Food. Yes, even healthy food. I had to find healthy food because I thought if I put up a bunch of sweet treats, somebody's going to sit there and go, that is not my problem. <laughs> even healthy foods. And exercise. I want to repent of that idol. And politics. And I don't know what else. I, I don't know what else is in your heart. I, I have trouble seeing my own. But again, we know from the Jeremiah passage, God knows. And he longs to bring that forward in us so that we can confess it to him. And turn it over to him and let him change us. On your handout is the most incomplete list ever. And I put it in alphabetical order because I honestly didn't even know where to start. So we don't have time to talk about all of them, so we're just going to talk about two, maybe only one. We'll see how far we get. I know I have a time limit. Y'all are going at 10. So let's start with the money prosperity. The ones that we don't get to talk about, notice that there is a biblical character. You know, we don't have to learn everything the hard way, right? So you can look at the biblical character, and I put the scriptures there that you can also look at. All right, let's, let's look at Zacchaeus. By the way, I could have chosen the rich young ruler for this. One of them did it right and one of them did it wrong. Both of them had the same, the same idol, so it appears. 
You'll find this story in Luke 19, but let me just summarize it for you. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was a Jew who was appointed by the Romans to get taxes from his fellow Jews. So he was really considered a traitor. And he was located in Jericho, which is a major custom center. So he was making a lot of money. The people didn't like him. As a matter of fact, they referred to him in verse 7 as, quote, a notorious sinner. But no, here, I just have to say it. Money is not evil. Uh, the Bible's very clear. The love of money is the root of all evil. But money is not good, nor is money bad. Money is just money. And that's a whole other talk and one I love to give. But today, back to Zach. So, he had a lot of money and was probably amassing more and more and more of it. And not in the most honest of ways. Now, it's not the money that's the problem, but greed would be. Let's look at Colossians and Ephesians. Both verses say the same thing. A greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. And then Luke, in the Luke passage, that's Jesus speaking. And he says, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. So here comes Jesus. And the crowd is huge. You might know the song that tells the story, right? The crowd is so big, Zacchaeus runs ahead, climbs a tree, is looking. He sees Jesus. Jesus comes right up to the tree, looks up, calls Zacchaeus by name, and tells him, come on down, because I'm going to your house today, right? Remember the song, I'm going to your house today? Yeah, Zach climbs down quickly. The Bible says, quote, in great excitement and joy. Now the crowd, not so much, right? They're not pleased at all. As a matter of fact, verse 7 tells us they're grumbling that Jesus would be the guest of a, quote, notorious sinner. The next verse, verse 8, is a meanwhile verse, a back at the ranch verse. Listen. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord, and if I cheated people on their taxes, I'll give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. What happened during the meantime? In the line between verse 7 and verse 8, Zacchaeus met Jesus. Look at the heart change. Again, we can't see the heart, but we can see the action. He promised to give away 50% of his income to the poor. Do you know much how, how much was required by the law? 10%. You can, I, I reference those scriptures. You can look them up on your own. Leviticus and Numbers are the law that tells what to do. One of those talks about uh, when you, uh, what he should do with his cheating. If you had stolen anything, you were to give back 20% interest. What does he do? Far more. He wanted to give back four times the amount he had stolen. That's way above 20%. 300%. God's salvation does not come in response to a changed life. A changed life comes in response to the salvation offered as a free gift. That's grace, right? Jesus had replaced money as Zacchaeus is God, so money went back to being merely that, just money. Now, I just want to give a personal note on this one. The way God helped me with this particular idol was the people he placed in my life. He gave me my husband, Ken, who, one of his main spiritual gifts, he has several, but one of them is giving. Now, I love this. When we were dating, I got all kinds of cool stuff. Even when we went away to college, I got a going away present. And we went to the same college. <laughs> then we got married. And I remember him driving up and him standing in the front yard with 
with the hugest grin on his face and two people driving away in our car. And I pulled up, I said, what's going on? He said, oh, I just gave them our car. <laughs> and this moment started a heart change in me that I knew had to happen. I knew had to happen. I don't know if I wasn't doing well or what, but then he gave me this child whose gift is giving. So God has sandwiched me in between these two beautiful givers that I have been with for the past 30-something years, day in and day out. And if you live with someone who that, we're all to give, by the way, so don't, you can't go, well, that's not my gift. That, we're all to give. But it is so much fun living with them and watching. They think differently. And I'm learning over the years to think like that. Just the joy of keeping him first through generosity. It is so much fun and so exciting. I wrote down eight examples. Can't tell you a single one of them. we got to keep going. I will tell you absolutely, absolutely that you cannot outgive God ever, never. And God actually issues a challenge. This is the scripture I want you to write down. I'm sorry that I didn't put it on here. Malachi 3, 8 through 10. That's the last book in the Old Testament, so it's really easy to find. Malachi 3, 8 through 10. You check, you check me out. God issues a challenge, and it's good for today. All right, the next one on your handout is people relationships. And this is the one I promised my group we're going to talk about, so we will. And we're going to use Abraham and Isaac and Leah to talk about this particular idol. Now, Jennifer used Sarah last week. Remember? Sarah and Abraham were the really elderly folks who had finally, at last, the promised, blessed son, Isaac. Okay? So we're going to pick up the story in Genesis 22, and this is God speaking. He says, Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. I want you to see, this is the ultimate test. And I want you to notice, even how is Isaac referred? Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much. There's a great, 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 great love for this boy. God was not saying you cannot love your son. He was saying you must always love God more. Most supremely. The test wasn't about if Isaac loved his son or didn't love his son. God does stop Abraham right whenever his hand is poised with the knife to kill his son. Stops him with an angel and says, Now I know you fear God. That means loving, joyful awe and wonder before the greatness of God. The Lord is saying, now I know that you love me more than anything or anyone in the world. Human relationships can be idols. Ernest Becker in The Denial of Death says, no human relationship can bear the burden of Godhead. Let's look at Leah. Now her, whole, her full story is in Genesis 29. Let me summarize it for you. So Jacob is her husband. But really, Jacob wanted to marry Leah's sister, Rachel, but he was tricked. So he ends up with two sister wives, and it's not a pretty picture. I don't know when that would ever be a good thing, ever. But that's what happened. And now let's pick up in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he enabled her to have children, but Rachel could not conceive. So Leah became pregnant. She has a son. 
She says, now my husband will love me. She has another son. She says, the Lord heard that I was unloved. She has another son. She says, this time my husband will feel affection for me. She has another son. She named him Judah for she said, now I will praise the Lord. Do you see the shift? Do you see what's happened here? After years of childbearing, there's a breakthrough. When Leah gave birth to her last son, Judah, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. It's a different declaration. No mention of husband or child. It appears, perhaps, finally, she'd taken her heart's deepest hopes off of her husband and her children and had put them on the Lord. And look at what God did for her. You can check it out in Genesis 49. But we're told it would be through Judah that the true king, the Messiah, will someday come. God had come to the girl that nobody wanted, the unloved, and made her the ancestral mother of Jesus. God loves the unwanted, the weak, the unloved. God chooses his beloved. So you can put a blanket there. You, Kenneth, you, your husband, you, your children, you, your best friend, you, your mom. You can put in the blank, cannot ever be my life. Only Christ is my life. That comes from Colossians 1. Personal note on this, this was another struggle I had um, with my husband and my family. I loved them so much. And here's, I knew this was a problem years ago when we were first married before we ever had children, decades ago. When someone just asked me a question, a simple question, they said, what are you most afraid of? And it didn't take me that long to answer that Ken would die first. I wasn't afraid to die. I just didn't want him to die first and me to be left living without him. Immediately when I answered the question, God quickened my heart. And I'm like, whoa, I think I've got a problem. So again, that became years ago. God working on my heart. About the time I thought I had it, then I had my first child, my son, Taylor. And it's like I had to learn it again because I loved him so, so, so much. Here is what God taught me. I confessed it as sin to him, and it did take years. This wasn't an overnight thing. It continually came up. But he's been working on me, and here's what I finally fully came to realize. I cannot live without only God. Anyone and anything else, I can live without. But I cannot live without God. Two scriptures that I really struggled with were two of the, in, in the gospel, both are said by Jesus. Matthew 10, if you love your mother, father or mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. And then in Luke, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must by comparison hate everyone else, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. I came to know and understand that it's not that God wanted me to love my husband or children, my family, less. He wanted me to love him more with no close second because he is that holy. He is that set apart. I just read two weeks ago this book, You and Me Forever, by Francis Chan and Lisa Chan. I was at a store shopping and saw it, and I picked it up. I like, I like the Chans. I've read several of his books, and I turned it on the back, and the, the line that's highlighted says, The way to have a great marriage is by not focusing on marriage. 
I thought, oh, well, that's intriguing. So then I went to the table of contents, and the first chapter is, chapter one, marriage isn't that great. I thought, okay, I got to buy this book. So I bought it, and I read it, and I read it, and look at all my yellow highlights. It's really good. So I just, I wish I would have had this book when God was teaching me about this 30 years ago. And, you know, a decade probably in there, too. But I did it. But if this is one that you struggle with, I, I highly recommend this book. Someone has already asked for it, so um, when they return it to me, I'd be happy to loan it out to you again, if that's one of your struggles. For those of you who will not have a chance to read for another seven or eight years until all your children are gone out of your house during school, I did give you one excerpt. We've made Happy Families our mission. That is not the mission Jesus gave us. And then the, the question, the highlighted on the bottom, I put in your so what, now what, so you can think through those questions. From Lisa specifically, she says, growing up all I ever wanted to be was a wife and a mom, but without even realizing it, I elevated these roles higher than my truest identity as a child of God. And again, those questions I put in your so what, now what section. The others on your handout, we don't have time to talk about, but again, I encourage you to research them as God quickens your heart. Raise your hand if you have at least one strength, something you're good at. Oh, come on, people. You are not that humble. You're just liars. Yes, everybody in here has something, has a strength, at least one of them, okay? All right, just a caution. Your own strength can be an idol, and those scriptures are on your handout. In Jeremiah 17, 5, right after he tells them, don't let your own strength be an idol, this is why. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. That's what he wants to be for us. There's one um, approval idol. I did not list that on there. Um, but if that's one you struggle with, it's not one that I particularly, I think because of the way God has gifted me, if I cared what you guys thought of me, it might keep me from from telling you you're liars and that you're not that humble. So, but if you, if that is one that you struggle with, this is a really good book, uh, Love Idol by Jennifer Dukesley, and it is in our church library, or will be after tomorrow night, okay? All right, um, the next part, Jennifer's going to give us some tools to deal with this, and I thought, again, I'd just give you some of Tim Keller's, and these are all in the form of questions that you have to ask yourself. Um, so we we're not going to do it here, all right? The first is daydreams. Archbishop William Temple says, your religion is what you do with your solitude. And I've added a lot of these self-questions in your so what, now what. Spending patterns. Matthew 6, 21, wherever your heart is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Emotions. Consider your most uncontrollable, most unyielding emotions. And again, look to your so what, now what sections for some self-questions you can ask Functional title, that most basic question which God poses to each human heart, has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? Those have been added to your so what, now what section. Functional salvation, what is operating in the place of Jesus Christ as your real functional salvation and Savior? What are you looking to in order to justify yourself? Whatever it is, it's an idol. And you must identify it and reject it and replace it. 
In idle elimination round, Jennifer gave us some excellent suggestions last week, has more coming our way this next week. Again, I'm just trying to give you a bigger, broader picture. So I give you three scriptures on that handout. The first is Timothy Keller's suggestion to meditate and really put into practice the Colossians 3 practice. How do I replace idols? By setting my sights on the realities of heaven, by realizing that Christ is my life. In Counterfeit Gods, he says, Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. Francis Chan's suggestion in his book, You and Me Forever, to get rid of idols, he says our lack of intimacy with God causes a void that we try to fill with the frailest of substitutes, like wealth or pleasure, like fame or respect, like people, like marriage. And then he suggests going to Revelations 4 and 5 and meditating on that and picturing God as you read those passages. I added the Isaiah 40 passage because that's one of my favorite to worship God with, to meditate on. Well, understanding the love of God for me should be compelling enough. But if it is not, let these ramifications repel you from idols. Okay, Blindness to reality. Psalm 135 shows us that's what happens in every case of idolatry. We are blind to reality. Distortion of thoughts and feelings. We already looked at the Romans 1 passage. passage. Distortion. The next one, hatred of God. We already looked at the Luke passage. We don't need to reread it here. And the last one, forfeiture of God's mercies. Jonah 2.8 says, those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's mercies. So the problem of idolatry is not just in Hosea's time. It's today. I have a heart problem. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. So the question each one of us must answer, I must answer continually regularly with the help and the power of God alone is the king of kings the king of my heart it's a one-seater the throne is a one-seater he will not share it the songs we sang I'd rather have Jesus we sang I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today a verse we didn't sing says he's all that my hungering spirit needs I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead if I'm struggling with when I struggle with any area of idolatry, it really helps me to go back to the cross. That's why I chose the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Listen to the last line again in case you missed what you were singing. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, his love for me, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul my life, my all. That is an amazing fact. The God of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only one true God, the, his love for me demands my soul, my life, my all, but he will not take it from me. I must surrender it to him. We begin with a question I want to end with one. Let's say you're married, and your husband is really, really a good husband, he, and he is a stupendous father. He loves you. Now, he also loves this other woman, but he spends most of his time with you. He's pretty good about that. All of the holidays, you get all of the holidays. Are you good with that? Let's pray together. 
Lord, I want to be kept from anything, anything that might take your rightful place in my heart. Help me to guard my heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life, even today. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You are dismissed.